Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this is my show. Uh, this episode is about lost and found. Uh, a couple of kids from two completely different time periods, two different places, found two different things, and both of those things were quite remarkable. I don't know, maybe you found something unusual in your life. Maybe you've stumbled on um, some hidden treasure, perhaps, or even just, uh, you know, maybe a railroad spike. I don't know. There's all sorts of stuff in the world, and it's easy to find. Some of it we never find. That's part of quiz time, too. You'll hear some stories of some stuff that has never been recovered, which I think is also very interesting. And some of those may lead to more episodes. But I'm glad you're here and uh, ready to get started. I don't have much preamble, nothing to get through. Working on the underwear book, it's getting closer and closer. So I'm excited to tell you more about that. I hope to have it out, you know, in the wintertime. Thanks a lot, everybody. Let's rock. Or mineral. Typically speaking, there are two likely scenarios if you head out for a day of fishing. Sometimes you might come home with fish, but other days you go fishing and you come up empty-handed. My uncle used to say, that's why they call it fishing and not catching. See, there's no guarantee that any given day will be a fishy day. But that didn't stop 12-year-old Conrad Reed from heading out to try his luck with the fish in a North Carolina creek one day way back in 1799. As it would turn out, fish never even factored into Conrad's day because he actually found a very rare third scenario. One that did not involve fish at all, but something far more valuable instead. It was the unlikeliest of fishing trips, and it made history, eventually. Conrad's dad was a man originally known as Johannes Riet. Johannes was born in what we call Germany today, and as a young man, he joined the military. In the 1770s, a war began across the ocean between American colonists and the British crown. Initially, it was of little bother to him in Germany, but fate would lead him down a fortuitous path to America anyway. The Americans wanted independence from the British, so the British sent an army to the American continent to subdue the revolting Americans. This is known as the American Revolution. It's not entirely accurate to say the British sent an army to the continent, though, because they actually sent more than one army. Johannes Reed, who had no allegiance to America, nor Britain, wound up on the American continent fighting in the prolonged war. He and many of his fellow German soldiers, known as Hessians, were hired as mercenaries by the British crown to fight on their side. So for years, Johannes from Germany was paid to fight against the Americans alongside the British. And he did just this, march after march. There were occasional battles and lots of boring downtime until he eventually looked around and thought, you know what, this place is okay. I think I could get used to it. I don't have anything else at stake besides a paycheck from the British government. Plus, I could get hurt in all of this fighting. I'm gonna stay. Johannes wasn't alone. Many other Hessian soldiers deserted or left their post in the army and built a home in America. Along with a few other German speakers, Johannes settled in North Carolina, not far from the Little Meadow Creek. He Americanized his name, becoming not Johannes Reed, but John Reed. 
He bought some land, and he started a family. One member of the family he and his wife Sarah started would be his son, Conrad Reed. When he was old enough, Conrad would head out with a bow and arrow to help feed his family with some fish. Yes, it might sound strange to use a bow and arrow on fish, but in the shallow waters of the Little Meadow Creek, Conrad had an easy time seeing his targets, and he was quite accurate with his tools. One Sunday in 1799, 12-year-old Conrad decided not to join his parents for church service and instead went out to the creek he knew so well. Not long after arriving, he stood scanning the water for fish, which often looked like a shadow under the reflective surface in the afternoon sun. Conrad's eyes spotted something, but it was unlike anything he had seen before. It wasn't a black bass or a rainbow trout, but instead a big yellowish lump just below the gurgling surface of the creek. Curiosity got the best of him, and he abandoned his hopes of bringing any nearby fish home for his family. Putting his bow and arrow down on the bank, he scared away anything that might have been swimming by at his particular bend when he began wading through the creek's current to get a closer look. The yellow lump appeared to be a rock of some sort, so he bent down to pick it up, arm deep in the cool running water. It was heavier than he thought, but nevertheless he hoisted the wet 17-pound yellowish lump and carried it back to his house. Tired from shouldering the load from the creek to his house, he showed it to his dad with a bit of pride and the hope that his dad would know what it was. Conrad's dad did not know what it was. He probably said something like, Cool rock, son! Or maybe, Ser schon rock, meine son! Before moving on with his busy day. So, the 17-pound yellowish lump sat by the door. When it was warm outside and they needed a breeze, its 17 pounds of mass was more than enough to hold the door open. And for years, this lumpy doorstop watched the Reed family come and go, in and out, out and in, day after day. Seasons changed. The kids grew. Every so often, somebody stubbed their toe on it. But there it sat. Until one day, three years later, Conrad's dad, John, was heading to town to handle some business for the farm. On a whim, he decided to throw the 17-pound yellowish lump into the wagon with him. He'd show someone in town who knew about stones and metals and the like. John, what you've got here is gold. 17 pounds of it. That's a lot. Yeah, it's been very heavy, and uh, it's made a good doorstop. A doorstop? Come on. What do you want for it? Name your price. John stopped to think. Farm work was hard. After it was all said and done, he would work for an entire week and have about $3.50 to show for it. It would be nice to build up a little reserve, he figured. So he asked for one week's income. I'll take $3.50. Did you say $3.50? Yeah, $3.50. Sold! Your gold is sold. Here's your money. Thanks, John. Now you might think that John Reed got hosed on this deal. Would you be right? You'd be worse than... Uh, wait, sorry, no. I mean, yeah, of course you'd be right. Of course you'd be right. Dude got hosed. The Reed's 17-pound gold doorstop was worth thousands of dollars at the time. But don't worry about Conrad's dad. He did okay in the end. Because where there's one piece of gold, there's probably more. This nugget wasn't the only nugget on the land that John had purchased. 
Sure, he was angry about getting hosed on the $3.50 transaction when he understood what it was worth and what had happened. But lucky for him, there was plenty more where that came from. He could practically say, Okay, fine, I'll go out to my farm and get another piece of gold. Which is practically what he did. You see, John's golden doorstop was the first gold found by European settlers in America. This was momentous, and it came almost exactly 50 years before the famous gold rush across the country in California. North Carolina soon became the center of gold in America, because it wasn't just on the Reed farm. Now, to John, farming came first. As far as livelihoods go, he felt it was stable, respectable, there was less chance involved, and he liked the rhythms of the season. Spring into summer and fall into winter, it dictated his lifestyle and working habits. So when the work was light and he wasn't busy in the fields, he had time for more mining. And on his property, more mining meant more gold. Most of the mining on John Reed's property during his lifetime was placer mining, which is when prospectors look for gold in a stream bed, often with tools like pans or rocker boxes or sledges. It was pretty productive, and as a result, his area of North Carolina was the site of the original American gold rush. Hey, did you hear about John Reed's nuggets? No, does he have some delicious chicken nuggies or something? Chicken nuggies? Nah, pal. More like gold nuggies. Gold nuggies? Biggest gold nuggies you can imagine. I don't know, I can imagine an awful lot. You ever seen a 17-pound doorstop made of gold? Now that sounds like a big gold nuggie. There were more nuggies, uh, I mean, nuggets, on his land. One, found a few feet below the surface nearly a century later in 1896, weighed 22 pounds. That wasn't the biggest, though. The largest gold nugget was found nearby in Cabarrus County. This 28-pound chunk was found by an enslaved man named Peter. And that's an important part of the story, too. As North Carolina's gold rush started, people came from all around, even overseas, to pull the gold from North Carolina's soil and water. As the gold in the streams disappeared, many moved on from placer mining and began digging and even tunneling. At many of the mining sites, the work was done not by the landowners or prospectors, but by enslaved workers, mostly men, who put their bodies at risk working hard for days on end. Anytime an enslaved man had a lucky strike and turned up gold, the valuable rock and the profits went to the enslavers, rather than the people who actually worked hard labor to find the gold. At the Reed Gold Mine, operations continued as long as John Reed lived, and when he passed away in 1845, the land was sold and underground mining was continued by later owners until 1912. Today, the Reed Gold Mine is a North Carolina State historic site and has a museum dedicated to the Reed story and the first gold rush in America. Based on how much gold was found in the area, a gold rush was inevitable. Someone would have found some gold at some point because there was plenty of it. Heck, they may have even stubbed their toe on it. But as it happened, the gold rush all began with a 12-year-old finding something curious in a creek. He didn't come home with fish but he came home with a pretty cool doorstop. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. 
Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Are you looking for a podcast that your whole family can enjoy that asks the deep philosophical questions like, do trees fart? If you are, then you'll love Tumble, a science podcast for kids. I'm Lindsay. And I'm Marshall. Join us as we explore stories of science discovery from butts to animals, dinosaurs, astronomy, and everything in between. You'll love these stories and you'll learn something new. Find and follow Tumble Science Podcast for Kids wherever you get your podcasts or at sciencepodcastforkids.com. It's time for You Have 30 Seconds, and this month, our guest is Milo Manning, and he's going to tell us about a new way to write the Cherokee language. Oh, see, that's how in Cherokee. I'm your host, Milo Manning, from Salsa, Oklahoma. 200 years ago, Sequoia and his daughter, Ioka, presented his syllabary to the Cherokee Council. What is a syllabary? It's different than an alphabet because each syllable has its own symbol. Sequoia had spent years being called lazy and crazy, but he was neither. Within two years, 90% of Cherokees were literate. And his cabin is in a museum in our hometown. Check it out if you're ever passing through. Milo, if I'm ever passing through in Oklahoma, I will absolutely stop and check it out. That sounds absolutely fascinating. I can't wait to learn more about that myself. Thank you for your submission. And if you have a 30 seconds or you have a you have a 30 seconds, then all you need to do is record it with the voice the voice app is what I'm trying to say on your phone or other device and send it to me at hello at the past and the curious.com. You only have 30 seconds to do it though. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. Yes, once again, it's quiz time. And all of our stories in this episode are about things that have been found, mostly by accident. So our quiz time questions are about things that have been lost. Like this. Many historians believe the very first feature-length movie has been lost, and since it was only reproduced on a few rolls of film, it is likely gone forever. This long-lost movie is the story of what famous Australian outlaw? The Story of the Kelly Gang was a movie released in 1906, and the hour-long production told the story of infamous bush ranger and criminal Ned Kelly. Because it followed notorious criminals, it was controversial in its day, and it's believed that more than a few copies were destroyed. It was the longest film ever made at the time, and it was an international success, but it's believed that no one alive today has ever seen it. Here's question number two. In 1917, the ruling Romanov party fell from power in the Russian Revolution. After their deaths, a very few, very small, very ornate, and very expensive objects made by a Russian jeweler disappeared. 
The missing objects belong to the family and have never been found. But what were they? Peter Carl Fabergé's eggs were the pinnacle of his abilities. The Fabergé eggs were like the fanciest, most beautiful little Easter eggs you could ever imagine. There are other Fabergé eggs in the world, and they are worth millions of dollars each. But there are still eight ones missing. Who knows what you might find and what you could bump into. So keep your eyes peeled. Okay, question number three. A lot of things went missing during World War II, and many of those were works of art. Perhaps the biggest thing to go missing was taken by Nazi forces from the Catherine Palace in St. Petersburg, Russia, back to Germany. But by the end of the war, this big thing disappeared entirely. It was known as the Amber What? The Amber Room, that's right. An entire room was taken from a Russian palace, reconstructed in Germany, and then disappeared entirely. The Amber Room was originally in Berlin, where sculptors and craftsmen spent six years creating one of the most ornate rooms in history. Every surface was covered in detail, and there was gold leaf and carvings and amber panels and gemstones and more shiny surfaces than you can shake a stick at. But after the war, it disappeared, and no one knows where it is. I think it goes without saying that spies have a lot of cool tricks. It comes with the territory, it's part of the job. But a cool spy trick only works if everything goes according to plan. If the information someone is trying to secretly pass falls into the wrong hands, covers get blown. And we all know that spies depend on secrecy. And if someone's secret gets out, they aren't going to be an effective spy anymore. In fact, they become a liability, a problem, someone who could put a spy mission at risk. We've discussed plenty of spies on the show, from the American Revolution to the Civil War to World War II, but perhaps more than all of these times of great upheaval, a period known as the Cold War might take the cake when it comes to deliciously interesting and fascinating spy stories. The Cold War was a conflict between the Soviet Union and America that lasted from the 1940s to the 1990s. Among other things, it involved posturing, intimidation, racing to space, and lots of spying between the two countries. Luckily, it never heated up enough to melt into an armed conflict, but the threat was always there. One small and curious chapter of the Cold War spies began with a 13-year-old boy named Jimmy Bozart. One summer day in 1953, Jimmy was walking his paper route in Brooklyn, New York. He wasn't delivering papers. That was something he took care of early in the morning. Instead, he was retracing his earlier steps to collect the weekly payments from customers at a time when he knew that they would be awake. A week's delivery of the Brooklyn Eagle, which is the newspaper he dropped on doorsteps and tossed onto stoops, cost 35 cents. When he knocked on the door of an apartment shared by two school teachers who were his customers, they smiled and gave him a handful of coins. The nickels and dimes added up to 50 cents, which left him with a pretty generous tip of 15 cents. At least it was generous by 1953 standards. But as he turned and bounded down the stairs, Butterfingers Bozart accidentally fumbled his fistful of funds which quickly found their way to the floor. Jimmy watched as the coins clinked and clanked on the ground as they landed. 
If he had been listening closely, he would have noticed one clattering coin did not clatter quite like the others. Whether he heard it or not, as soon as he dropped to his knees to retrieve his money, he figured out that one of his nickels was actually an abnormal nickel. Upon impact, it had split in half. It was not a long drop, and it didn't fall on any laser beams or super-thin diamond-strong saw blades. I mean, come on, it's 1953. Get your head out of the future. There was no explanation young Jimmy could think of for a nickel to simply split into two. He found the reverse, which is the backside of the nickel, and he found the obverse, which is the front side of the nickel. And confused, he sandwiched them together to resemble a more normal nickel. But he also noticed something very small in between the two hollowed-out halves, like a tiny slice of cheese between the two buns of a coin sandwich. This was an abnormal nickel indeed. So he took it home to show his dad. With bright lights and a magnifying glass, Mr. Bozart took a gander. Someone, somewhere, had painstakingly split this nickel down the center and hollowed it out to hold something very small and very secret. It was hard to tell what was sandwiched inside the two halves of the mysterious nickel. Son, this is an abnormal nickel. And inside there seems to be a piece of photographic film. It's really small. It's very tiny, yes, but after all, this is an abnormal nickel. The picture on the film just looks like a lot of numbers. I think maybe it's a code, like a secret code. We should notify the authorities. Jimmy's mind immediately went to a girl from his class. They were friends, and her father was a policeman. So he headed straight to their home. The young lady's father wasn't home, but he told her about the abnormal nickel anyway, shoved the coin in his pocket, and wandered off to go have some sweet summertime fun, which probably included ice cream and stickball. When the policeman was informed later by his daughter about the reason for Jimmy's visit, he told someone he knew from the Federal Bureau of Investigations, or the FBI, a government intelligence agency that investigates such matters. They figured that Jimmy's coin, which seemed to contain a secret code hidden inside, was probably important. In any case, it should be investigated. So they set out to find Jimmy. But Brooklyn was a big place, full of lots of people. Pardon the intrusion, sir, but we're looking for your son. Would you know where he might be? Jimmy's dad told them Jimmy wasn't home. When they asked where Jimmy's mother was, they learned that she was at the local church playing bingo with some of her friends. Oh, nuts! Church bingo! That means she's spending nickels, probably lots of them. Quick, we gotta go! When they arrived at the bingo game, they were worried that the nickel could have been mixed in with all of the thousands of other nickels already used that day. They had no choice but to check them all. Yep, that, that one's normal. Yep, that one's normal too! Oh, that's a normal nickel. This, this is gonna take all day! Now get out of my way! Yep, yep they're all normal. Let's go! Next, they stopped the neighborhood ice cream man, figuring Jimmy liked a sweet treat as much as anyone else. Mr. Ice Cream Man, we are in search of an abnormal nickel! Um, I just have ice cream. Would you like one? We're going to need to check your nickels. This is very abnormal, I must say. Nope, it's very normal. And so are your nickels. They're all normal. And your ice cream is delicious. Finally, they found the boy playing stickball with his friends. Jimmy! Jimmy Bozart! What's that in your pocket? Oh, it's just some abnormal nickel. Thought you guys might want it. Here you go. 
Relief washed over the agents as they opened the two-piece coin to reveal the film inside. But gratification was far from immediate. The code it contained was a tough code to crack. Years went by, and they were still stumped by the code, which, as Mr. Bozart had correctly determined, was just a huge collection of numbers. A break came when a man showed up at the American Embassy in Paris, France, in 1957. The man, named Reno Heyhanen, claimed to be a Russian spy, but he had recently been recalled to the Soviet Union and was on his way there. There's reason to believe that he had made a few mistakes, and so the Soviet Union did not consider him a safe spy anymore. Sometimes people in his shoes were sent to prison, or worse. So rather than test his luck, he told American representatives in France who he was and that he wished to defect, or leave the Soviet service. He did not want to go back to Russia, and he did not want to be a spy any longer. If they'd keep him safe, he'd offer assistance to the Americans. And as it would turn out, that coin Jimmy Bozart found had once belonged to, or at least been intended, for him. Perhaps Reno had not been careful with it, because he might have accidentally spent that abnormal nickel on something along the way. You know, a cup of coffee, perhaps some ice cream. Another possibility, though, is that the coin was a dead drop that Heihanen never got. Dead drops are a method spies use to share information without ever being in the same place at the same time, which is generally a no-no in the spy world. There's a chance that another spy left it hidden for him at an agreed-upon spot, perhaps under a park bench or beneath a brick or in a random hole in the wall. Heihanen would have known where to look and found it after the other spy had left it and disappeared but it's entirely possible that somebody walked by, saw the nickel, and picked it up before Heihanen. Cool, a free, totally normal nickel. Hello, ice cream. However it got lost, the two-piece Thomas Jefferson stuffed with a secret code eventually made its way to the teachers, and then to butterfinger Jimmy Bozart, and ultimately into the hands of the FBI. Since they had the defecting spy and the abnormal nickel, they were in a unique position to finally crack the code. Heihanen helped, but it was inconsequential. When translated, the numbers were basically a welcome message. Congrats on being a spy for the Soviet Union. Here's some details and basic instruction. You know, stuff like that. Nothing valuable. But at least the FBI knew how to crack the code now. The nickel didn't lead the FBI to anything important, but Heihanen himself did. He soon helped identify a few high-ranking Soviet spies, and the Americans were able to identify a man who went by the name of Emil Goldfuss. In reality, this man had used somewhere around 100 different aliases, or fake names, to hide his true identity. He was actually Rudolf Abel, and his arrest, thanks to Heihanen's help, made him the highest-ranking Soviet spy ever caught. Jimmy Bozart, then 17, testified about the hollow nickel at the espionage trial. The spy was sentenced to prison, but was soon part of a prisoner exchange when American authorities released him to the Soviet Union. In return, a decorated American pilot was released by the Soviet authorities. After the trial, a grateful and impressed patron surprised Jimmy by buying him a new car. This was a much better tip than the abnormal nickel. But the biggest gift of all might have been the ability to tell this story for the rest of his life. Some days, you just might overlook something remarkable. But other days, you might be fortunate enough to find it. 
thank you for listening to episode 68 of The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan, and this has been a production of me, Mick Sullivan. So I have some Patreon people to thank. As always, I'm so grateful for everyone's support. It really helps this keep going. I want to keep doing this for a long time because I really enjoy it and I know a lot of people enjoy it too. So it's really uh, special and important to me that people have uh, supported it in this way. So let's uh, do some thank yous. Carolyn and Nia McLean in Massachusetts. Hello and thank you to you. I'm so glad that you are out there and I'm glad that you like the show. It's awesome. And the same goes for you, Lucille Ayers in Charlottesville. Lucille, hello to you. By the way, Charlottesville is a cool place. I've been there a lot. I really, really, really like it. There's a lot of connections between Charlottesville and my home in Louisville. Um, let's see. Also, Charlotte Moe, hello to you. I may have mentioned you last week. I may have thanked, or thanked you last month, but you know what? Maybe you get two. Thank you, Charlotte. I'm so glad that you are out there too. Um, and then there's a couple of people that I have questions about, and uh, I'm just going to ask you here. So, Tori Sellen, thank you. If there's someone else you would like me to thank, then you let me know. Birdie Jinx, if there's someone else that you would like me to thank, let me know. Otherwise, thank you. I'm so glad you like the show. And last but not least, Sherry Nay in Asheville, North Carolina, another super awesome place. Uh, hey, and there was an episode about North Carolina, so hey perfect for you. Um, if there is someone else that I need to thank for any of you all out there, you let me know. Otherwise, thank you individually, and thank you, whoever you are right now listening to this, for listening. I'm so glad that you enjoy the show, and if you would like to help the show, uh, tell somebody about it with your mouth or your fingers. You know, type it or say it or put it in a paper airplane and fly it through somebody's window. Whatever it takes. Tell somebody to listen to The Past and the Curious. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer. We will be back uh, in July. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. <laughs>